Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In today's episode, we continue with our occasional series where Tracy Nicholas, folklore podcast film and theatre correspondent, meets with traditional, and sometimes not so traditional, storytellers to discuss their craft. This time, American teller Rachel Ann Harding goes under the spotlight. Rachel Ann Harding is a traditional storyteller, musician, educator and podcaster, who is passionate about sharing beautiful folk, myth and traditional tales. In 2018, she was a featured storyteller for the Exchange Place at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro. She's the creator and producer of the Story Story podcast, which showcases traditional storytelling from around the world. The podcast seeks to not only showcase brilliant traditional tellers, but also to create awareness around and encourage the growth of the tradition of telling folk tales. She's also the co-host of the live storytelling series Stories with Spirit. Rachel Ann and storyteller actor Cooper Brown, who we featured on a previous episode of this series, founded Stories with Spirit in 2014 to share their acting and storytelling with adult audiences. They bring traditional live storytelling into the millennium, with a variety of tellers that bring their unique interpretations and fresh perspectives to classic tales. From in-person tellings to online events, Stories with Spirit delivers traditional tales for a contemporary audience. Stories with Spirit also produces the Fairy Tale Variations series, in which multiple tellers perform very different versions of the same tale. From the fairy tale classic to the modern, audiences hear the story from every character's perspective in a single event. Rachel Ann and Cooper have produced over 20 virtual storytelling shows and performed in many more. As an educator, Rachel Ann weaves story and song together to create unique and entertaining storytelling events, keynotes, workshops and classes for both adults and children that display the relevance of storytelling in our lives. Rachel Ann believes that fairy tales are not just for children and mesmerises audiences with old tales woven into new adventures. Here's Tracy and Rachel Ann. Hi Rachel Ann, thank you so much for being here, welcome. Thank you, I'm so thrilled to be here, this is, this is what I love to talk about. So it's wonderful to have an excuse to just talk about it for a little bit. <laughs> Perfect. Well, can you start us off by telling us who you are, how you came to storytelling as a profession, and maybe some of the cool, interesting stuff you're involved in right now? Sure. So um, I came to storytelling um, in a roundabout, a couple of different roundabout kinds of ways. I think the seeds were always planted by my mother when I was young. She she told me stories when I was little. And then my grandmother would send us clippings of um, fairy tales that she cut out from the newspaper. And that was another exposure. And then I loved reading. I was so voracious when it came to reading and, and read a lot. Um, and when I went through college, I was uh, at Naropa University in Boulder, and I was doing an interdisciplinary study track. And I knew I wanted to do something in the field of childhood education. I had taken some classes in performance art and music, but I wasn't sure how all of that was going to come together. 
And it was, was a bit of a lightning moment of trying to remember what I loved to do as a child that I gave up that I realized storytelling was that golden thread throughout my life that had kept me sane and had taught me a lot about um, life. And I, I realized that. And then I was immediately struck with the thought, well, is that something people do? Is that an actual profession that I could pursue? And uh, it was kind of kismet in the sense that a lot of the people that I had in my life at that moment had known some very professional and, and storytellers that had been telling a long time. One of them was Laura Sims, and they uh, turned me on to her work. And she's written a number of books and is an incredible traditional teller who's been telling since the 1970s. And I started pursuing her work. And then at the same time, there was a conference that featured a number of storytellers and one of them was liz weir a storyteller from northern ireland and i went up to her afterwards it was one of my first experiences of actually seeing storytelling and that being traditional storytelling performed and i was i was gone like it was after that my my heart and soul were all about storytelling um but I went up to Liz afterwards and I said, you know, can I, can I have an email conversation with you about what you do? I'm really interested. And she handed me her card and she said, I, I have a hostel in Ireland. You can come over, um, you know, room and board, work at the hostel, and I'll show you what I do. Wow. That must have been amazing. I was beyond thrilled. <laughs> I was so excited and, and kind of that moment of, can I do this? Can I figure out how to do this? But I graduated and then uh, in October, 2012, so it was 2011 that I started on this path of storytelling. And in 2012, I went over to Northern Ireland and I stayed with Liz for the month of October, which is also why I have a deep love for spooky stories. Okay. Um, that is, it's one of my favorite times of year to get into all those spooky stories. And I, I stayed with her for a month and she would, she would get up in the morning and she'd say, all right, I'm going to be leaving it at six o'clock and I've got four gigs that day. And if you would like to see what I do or come with me, you need to be in the car at that time. And so we'd get in the car and we'd drive around <clears throat> Ireland. We'd go into schools and um, women's groups and uh, haunted houses and festivals and things like that. And I just watched what she did and the people she interacted with and the stories she told. And I had this grand plan. I was going to come back to the United States and I would very quickly be able to build my career as a storyteller. And I came back and, and, uh, and the path has been a long one. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about, so I know you do a few different things. You've got podcast, you do live story, you do teaching. Can you just kind of lightly touch on each of those things and how, um, you know, storytelling in all these different ways has is building your career. Yeah. So when, uh, when I first started storytelling, it was, uh, I, I started um, co-leading a storytelling group with Cooper Brown and he and I started stories with spirit, which is a story. We, we focus on traditional folk and fairy tale. So much of what we saw in the field was that that folk and fairy tale was for kids and you go there and you tell the three little pigs and you have them puff and and that is not cooper <laughs> i i enjoy children and i was a montessori preschool teacher previous to going to college um but for cooper he was like i want to tell stories for adults 
I thought that sounds really interesting. I'm totally on board with that. So we started doing stories with spirit and did a number of shows every year telling traditional stories for adults and for group kids could come, but they, they were warned that this was not going to be cute up for them. And, uh, we went on to do that in 2016. I started the Story Story podcast because in the process of trying to build my story career, I found I was going to need to do a lot of side jobs. And one of those side jobs was cleaning. So I would spend about 10 hours a week cleaning houses. And I listened to a lot of podcasts. And I thought, you know, during this time, it would be great if I could listen to other storytellers and continue to hear and get ideas of how I wanted to tell and things I liked. And I couldn't find a podcast that had the traditional folk and fairy tales on it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started one. Actually, it was, I, I was dating a guy at the time who was like, well, maybe you should just put your storytelling dreams aside for a little bit and become a computer programmer. <laughs> and I felt so shocked and scandalized. I'm like, I'm going to start a podcast. I'll show you. And of course, I've bought a yacht with the podcast and it makes me tons of money. Of course. <laughs> no, it's, it's still a little podcast, but it has a really, um, a really solid foundation of listeners and families and people who are getting exposed and hearing some of their favorite storytellers um, tell traditional folk and fairy tale. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I, I found the, the podcast when I first became interested in storytelling. Um, and, and you're right, there, you know, a lot of the storytelling is really personal experience, mm -hmm. as opposed to the traditional tales. And it's so it was hard to find anything. And, and yours was one of the first I came across. So you, you are making an impact. Yes. I mean, that was the point is, I love these. And I want people to know more than Jack and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. I want them to know Anansi and um and Colin and um all these fairy tale the 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 um story tell stories from around different parts of the world and get to know the tellers too. What what I think I found most astonishing about the community of storytellers is how warm and lovely and generous they are. And it's such a, it's such a strong community. And mm -hmm. I, I think more people would tell stories if they felt and understood just the, the heart of this community that tells traditional folk and fairy tales and tells stories and brings these to schools and places around the world. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the great things about Story Story is that it does. It, it has, you know, from like tellers that are very diverse. They're from, you know, around the world. They're, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is to hear these stories that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. But the other is what, what you were saying earlier struck me of listening to other storytellers and, and helping, you know, find your voice. And, and I think it's so important to hear that there, there isn't that, that one you know, way that when you were a little kid and they brought in a storyteller and it did, it sounded all cutesy. There's a lot of different ways to tell these stories. And I think that that's an exciting part of what you do on the story story podcast. Mm -hmm. And it is, it has been so made possible by the generosity of storytellers <clears throat> who I have approached and said, can I, can I use some of your work? And they have, have shared so much of their work. Um, 
just easily saying, yeah, please, please share this and let other people hear this. And, um, and then it was a great education for me. One, mm-hmm. it, you know, it was, it was my, hopefully my gift and my service to, <clears throat> to the community to spread this a little bit further and share with people that this is something that can be done. But also um, it was, you know, for a young storyteller to hear all of these tellers doing their work was just amazing. Yeah, that must have been very exciting. Now, when you're selecting tellers to to come on the podcast, how do you theme each episode or how, how do you decide how to do that? So the main piece that I tell any storyteller who's submitting to the podcast is that it needs to be traditional. I will fudge just a little bit if we've got tall tales or which is a different genre it's similar it's it's very much a cousin to traditional um but tall tales or um liars contests and things like that sometimes i'll do themed pieces around that uh you know in the beginning those first episodes were around what what material i had because i had (laughs) half a dozen storytellers so you get a lot of simon brooks and donna washington (laughs) first episodes um, but now what I do is I will look for a story that hasn't been on the podcast that has a really solid theme or piece of adventure around it. And then I'll find another piece to match it. So sometimes um, sometimes it'll be a story that I've wanted to tell and record, and then I'll find another one to match that. Sometimes it'll be, oh, this one has adventure and a group of three. So I'll find mm-hmm. another piece that has that kind of theme to it. Mm-hmm. And then I, I chart that out for about a quarter. I do, it, I, I do it about every three months. I'll chart it out for the next three months. And I have two incredible co-hosts on this podcast. You know, I, I was putting it out every other week in the beginning, and I found I really wasn't reaching who I wanted to reach or the, or the numbers I wanted to reach. So I reached out to Simon Brooks, who's another wonderful storyteller out of New Hampshire, and asked if he would be willing to co-host, which is he there's a there's a couple portions for this podcast. There's the true fairy tale where we talk about something that supposedly happened to us that has a little bit of magic or whimsy in it. One of my favorites is um I have a bunch of dust bunnies in my house. And so these tiny cowboys come and they round up the dust bunnies and herd them out of my house one spring. So it's kind of a a magical realism um, piece. And then we have a story and then we have the true fairy tale sponsor, who's a a sponsor that we make up that has a fairy tale theme to it. So it could be Red Riding Hood soap or magic carpet travel or something magical in that sense. And then they tell the rest of the true fairy tale and and have another story. And it's a lot of work. So Simon came on and started co-hosting with me. And then after a little while, um, my friend who's also a storyteller, Isabel Hauser from Switzerland, she also began to co-host as well. So it helps take the extra weight off of me in the process of running the patron side and the um, production and release of these episodes weekly. Yeah, I, I I love the the through line, and that's is that something that you write once you've selected kind of the stories that are going to go in it, and then you write it to to match. Is that how that works? It depends. The- I mean, sometimes it doesn't match at all. It's just kind <laughs> of a third story in okay. there, and sometimes Simon and Isabel will match it a little bit, but it it just has its tendency. It, I I got about four or five episodes in 
And because I had the same storytellers, I realized I needed to find something else to do besides introduce the storytellers. Sure. I mean, you can introduce Liz Weir so many times before people are like, <laughs> okay, what else can you tell me about it? Or just get to the story. <laughs> so I shortened up the intros and added these true fairy tale pieces to add somewhat of a connecting theme between the two stories. And then the the sponsors, I, I love the the fairy tale sponsors. They're hysterical. Um, I, I wait for those like parts and I'm just like, who's it gonna be this time? Um, uh-huh. And and those, uh, do you do you just, do you drop them in? Do you write new ones for every episode? How does that work? There's new ones for every episode. I think <laughs> at this point we have about 200 different sponsors, fairy tale sponsors. And now we're, we're having to just really think about what else. Cause I, I will sometimes be like, Ooh, what fairy tale person would make a multivitamin or what kind of person <laughs> would do. I mean, we've had mouse, we've had a helpful rodent cleaning services. Um, we've had competing schools from the Pied Piper and the Bremen uh, town musicians. Nice. So, we're really like, and then there's some that are far reaching. I've had Simon do a few that are very English specific characters okay. that I'm like, I don't know this character, but I guess it would make sense. <laughs> <He makes> glass. <laughs> well, they are a lot of fun. I, I really, I, I love them every time they, they pop up. Yeah, they're a lot of fun to make. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, stories with spirit. Mm-hmm. Can we go into a little more depth on that and tell us about the stories with spirit, the fairy tale variations, and uh, you know why you why you did it and what you're trying to achieve with it? Yeah, the fairy tale variations um, was something we had thought about doing for a while, um, and and what that is is we take one story and we find multiple tellers to recraft a well-known story: Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Hansel and Gretel to to have five different variations on it. And we had talked about it. And by we, I mean, Cooper Brown and myself had talked about it for a while, but then came the pandemic. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we were trying to figure out how we were going to continue doing storytelling. We saw a lot of people going online and Cooper really led the charge of saying, let's, let's do some online shows. Mm-hmm. And we started with some of our regular shows where it was us telling stories for 45 minutes. And then we said, you know, we can now take advantage of the incredible amount of talent that's in the storytelling community without having to fly anyone to Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. Yep. So we started setting up these fairy tale variations and inviting three other tellers. It was usually about five, three other tellers to tell a variation on a story. And this wasn't necessarily an original idea. A storytelling festival uh, had done this a while ago. So the community understood how the system worked. Okay. And we found that it struck a chord. Not only were people from the community of storytelling and who we knew were storytelling fans showing up, but it was starting to reach outside that and engage other people from all around the world. We've had folks from Thailand, Australia, India, um, Mexico, Canada, showing up at our storytelling events and, um, and really engaging with it. And what we would, we would have the five tellers tell, and then we do a talk back for about 30 minutes afterwards where 
People could ask questions about why the variation was twisted one way or another, why we focused on a particular character. And it's engaging people in a way that we just haven't seen in a while. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Now, do you find that now that technology is kind of opening things up this way um, and and you having your experience of going to Ireland and and being immersed in that environment, what what are the differences you find between like storytelling in the U.S. and storytelling overseas? In in Europe, I I speak to Europe because that's what I know. I'm, I'm assuming it is this way in other parts of the world as well. Um, but if you're in a taxi and the, the, in, in Ireland and they ask you what you do and you say, I'm a storyteller, they say, oh, go into a lot of schools, you know, uh, where, where's, where's your next gig? You know, when you say that here in the United States, people say, oh, they either give you a blank look and move on to like, where do you live? Or they ask if you read books to kids. Uh, and my general response is, I don't think you want to pay me what I charge. I to just read books to kids. Right. <laughs> we aren't familiar in, in the United States. I'm seeing that there isn't this familiarity with hearing and being told traditional stories mm-hmm. as they are in Europe and other, other places around the world. Even if people aren't storytellers themselves, they know or have heard these traditional stories growing up. This is what people would tell this is what people tell their children at night um, and what they hear in their schools and storytellers have a much stronger role in the communities than than they do here in the United States. Yeah I I think that when I first became interested in storytelling uh, the community where I am is a lot of you know personal stories and I really was drawn to more traditional tales and, and I felt like, you know, I was, I was out here alone. And so when, you know, the lockdown happened and I started finding different things online, I was like, Oh, thank God. Cause nobody here wants to talk about traditional stories. And, and it was almost like, I, I was not embarrassed, but I was just like, well, nobody cares here. So I'm not going to bother. <laughs> so, so it's, it, it's, it's really cool to be able to jump on to, you know, stories with spirit something like that, and just, you know, hang out for an evening. And and then to be able to hear the, the tellers talk afterwards is is great as well. I, I really enjoy that. Oh, and so it's so exciting to see how the community is growing for you to find traditional tellers, because the United States does have a really strong personal story community, the moth. I mean, you say the moth, and a lot of people know exactly what you're talking about. Right. You see a lot of personal story events happening and I think some of it is because personal stories are so juicy, you know? It's true. It's true. Oh, I can hear all this gossip about a person and <laughs> I don't know, uh, you know, what's really happened. And sometimes it's because that's a point that you can relate on. Uh, everybody's right. had a first love that's gone poorly or, you know, the loss of somebody in their lives or even something highly embarrassing that we can all laugh at. And traditional stories hit a different note there is there is that level of relatability of feeling foolish or having something embarrassing or or falling in love but there's a different theme or level that traditional stories drop into the story becomes so personal to the listener that when i tell i feel i 
I don't know what story the listener heard. I, I know exactly what I said. Right, I right. I certainly have no idea what story they heard. And I'll have people come up to me afterwards and say, I love that part where you talked about this and how her hair was golden and shimmering. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think I mentioned what color her hair was. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, you do. And when you get immersed in a story, you're, you're kind of building a world in your head that the, the words are carrying you along. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, everybody can hear a different story. That's, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you do something that a lot of storytellers do not. You incorporate music into your stories. Um, and can you talk about how you decide when you're going to use music, when you're not? And, and do you write it yourself? Are you just, how, how does that work? So I, I have, the other gift my mother gave me was music. You know, she loved music. She loved singing. She had us all singing when we were young. And so that's been a really big part of my life. And I, um, I play ukulele. I learned guitar, but then I found it was just easier to use four strings than six. And a lot of those, those, um, skills from the guitar transfer to the ukulele. And I started teaching that as well and taught that, um, uh, alongside and, being able to bring the two of them together, storytelling and music, kind of is up to the story a little bit. There are some stories that don't really lend itself to music, but I am drawn to stories that have people singing or um, the option to put in a musical piece that thread, threads its way through. Um, it's been something that just has been sneaking into the stories as I as I learn them. And sometimes I will write for it. I have a whole piece that's about, it's, it's supposed to be fringe, fringe size, 45 minutes, but really it lasts about an hour. And it's the story, the lute player about a woman whose husband is captured by a king. Um, and she dresses up as a man and takes her lute and wanders into the world to go rescue him. And when she finds him and brings him out of prison, she sees he's so broken that she doesn't reveal who she is but spends the entire journey back to their home, playing music, walking the streets with him and letting him heal so that when they are able to meet again at home, he's uh, he's more himself and able to be himself. Um, so that piece, I did write a number of stories for it. Often if I'm going to have, a, have um, uh, I did write a number of songs for it. If, otherwise, I will try to find a public domain song Okay. That fits into the story really well. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really, it adds a, a layer of depth that, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it sort of, it does bring back that kind of, you know, because the, music, there's a tradition of telling stories along with music or even, you know, stories just through song. Um, and, and I think that that's, it's, it's really nice to add that element. Um, and when you were talking about your teaching, um, can you talk about the online classes that you offer right now? Sure. Those I so the the online classes that I offer are um, are for parents. Um, okay. I do I do a lot of I love working with parents. The Montessori work I was preschool kindergarten. I, I got my um, certification for preschool and kindergarten, and um, I love that age group. And so this is where telling stories to kids. 
when I started, I did some teaching after I became a storyteller and worked with two to four-year-olds. And I started teaching them um, or telling them stories. And at first their, their attention span was about three minutes long. And you could tell the wind and the sun in about three minutes. <laughs> so we started with the wind and the sun, but it was also really engaging because I had them taking a deep breath and blowing out like they were the wind. Um, and then we would we'd go, brr, you know, so it was, it was so, it was very engaging. And then we moved on to longer and longer stories until they were sitting for 10, 15 minutes at a time listening to stories. Okay. And I thought this is there. I, I started to dive into the um, developmental reasons why storytelling can be so effective with children. Okay. And one of my favorites is that with little kids, most of what we do is direct or correct. Either we're saying, go put your shoes on, um, go do this. It's time to do this, time to eat dinner. Can you please do this a little faster? Or we're correcting them. Don't do that. Try not to do that. Oh, step over here. You know, we're, we're directing, we're correcting them. And to build a relationship where that is effective and supportive and, and healthy, you need to take time to connect. And so storytelling provides that space for connection that can be even sometimes have a point of correction in it, but it's not direct. Or it can just be a simple time you sit down and you say, it's story time, you know, right before bed, let's talk. And you have the eye connection and you have a smile and you have this time for them to just connect with you over something that is simple and fun and, and has um, that kind of emotional space. To mm -hmm. connect you with with your child or the child to connect to you. Got it. So it's teaching them about slowing down to take a look at that. But did, is it also confidence building? Because I wonder, you know, I mean, there I there are people who are, you know, they're they're shy. I can't do that, or mm -hmm. you know, and and that would be tragic that they're not sharing stories with their kids because they feel like they don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. There is a level of confidence and the kids are so wonderful. If you start with those shorts, Aesop fables, now you gotta be careful with Aesop because he was a preachy dude. So at the end of his stories, he really liked to be like, and that's why the moral is this, you know, and sometimes you look at them and you say, that's maybe not the moral I would put on to that. <laughs> but the stories are really short. And so there's this opportunity. You don't have to remember a lot. Mm -hmm. You just need to just try to tell that story and you're, you'll start to see your child respond. I, I, um, one of my favorite stories is I, I had a two and a half year old who came into my classroom and he was not quite potty trained and he did not want to be potty trained. <laughs> he didn't want to take his time to go sit down because he was having such a great time with his friends, which caused accidents. So when it came time, you know, every, every couple of hours or so we would need to remind him and he would resist us until I said, um, you know, I would, I would say, it's time to go use the bathroom. He was like, I don't want to. And I would say, well, you know, there's a story about a rabbit and this rabbit was outside one day and there was a big storm came in and the lightning came down and it started to rain and the rabbit started to run. And he said, what happens next? I said, we'll go sit on the toilet and try, and I'll tell you the rest while you're sitting on the toilet. <laughs> and he'd run in there, and he would sit down and be like, okay, what happens? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways parents can use it, and I, I think um, just those simple ways of playing with story 
can bring a lot to the relationship because your child can then um, know that this is a time to connect. Right, right. And and I know there are people develop their stories different ways. There are people I know that write everything out and they have to have it perfectly scripted. Can you talk a little bit about your style and how you develop a successful story? Yeah, from the beginning, it's looking for a story that either fits the needs of what I'm doing mm-hmm. or calls out to me and won't be quiet. Um, when I read a book with just a collection of folk tales, it's kind of like speed dating. Every I read through it and I, you know, it's conversation. Do I feel connected to the story? Do I like where it goes? Do I like how it ends? Is it something that I could adjust if I didn't like some part of it? And if it doesn't, that's fine. It, I just turn the page and I move on to the next date. <laughs> um, in the, some of, when I first started, I didn't write down a lot. I would write down bullet points of key points that I wanted to hit moving sure. through the story. Sure. And then I would work on developing on, as, as we put it, we, getting it into our mouth, you know, getting the rhythm of the story and trying to tell it out loud. And it was amazing, you know, working with Cooper, we did a lot of work bringing these stories to each other and saying, okay, I'm going to try telling this to you. Give me feedback back on how it works or doesn't. Now I've developed more into doing a lot of writing beforehand. Okay. I'll take a story and then I'll start to work it on the page. And sometimes I try to keep it close to how it was written in, in all those public domain, all the grim stories, you know, seeing if, if that language works for me, or sometimes I will take a shift and, and um, look at a particular character's perspective. I love the sensory details, Okay. Um, you know, talking about a sky full of storms, saying the clouds were red and purple as if they had been bruised, going into these like sensory details, the smells, the sights. And so weaving those in actually helps me kind of um, crochet my brain into the story when I have to say it out loud. Okay. Uh, so a, a lot of my stories do have written scripts, but when I tell them, it's certainly not a verbatim it's more that my mind has a really a stronger points for it to hang on to. Okay. As I tell the story. And you think that helps you tell it more naturally, but still hit those, those really like juicy details. Yeah. Cause especially with adult stories, there's a lot more detail in emotional detail or even just physical clues that happen in the story that you want them to remember later, if you're going to be bringing up a piece again. And so there's a lot more detail to make sure that um, you remember. And sometimes it's the emotional arc needs that amount of detail or length. Mm -hmm. So I think with us, with adult stories, especially having the, um, the written piece, when I, haven't told it in six months, I can go back and I can scan my notes. I can scan the written piece. And after I've told it a number of times, I'll go back to it and I will revise my script. Okay. It matches what I'm actually naturally saying during the show. Interesting. So So it develops. Yeah. That yeah. that's really that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I I always feel like I can tell when someone feels like they have to stick exactly to a script, because when they they get parts that they love, and if they don't hit the right note on it, it they stumble. And you can always tell that they they were like, oh, I didn't do that the way I wanted to. Uh-huh. So and it throws me off, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I, I find that sometimes when I've gotten too detailed in my script, I will stumble because I, I see things visually in my head. And when I'm telling stories, so much of it is, is this, um, watching the scene unfold and trying to remember where I'm focusing listeners attention. Uh So, you know, focusing on dainty hands or something like that in the, in the grand scheme of things, you knowing that her hands are dainty, unless she's going to lose her hands or do something very important with them, it may not be necessary. (laughs) Uh So I have to think, is this really an important piece or can I just go more simple with the language and tell the story? Um, in, in a more simplistic and straightforward way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be sort of a hard balance to tell it naturally, but well thought out. So it's not just, you know, and like telling an anecdote. Um, right. So, so yeah, that's that's got to be a tough balance. Um, so what do you think, we talked a bit about the difference between the traditional and the personal stories. Um, what What do you think where do you think we might be headed? Are our traditional stories are is it really it's making a renaissance now? Are we gonna see more of those and more different styles? What do you think is gonna happen? I it's hard to tell. It I still haven't seen traditional stories being told at the mainstream yet. Okay. Which it may not be something that can be mainstream. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or there's just maybe somebody who needs to be a brilliant TikToker and, and get it on there. <laughs> um, personal stories have found a stride with the moth. The you know, the, and people want to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. They want there's there's a longing to be heard and seen. Um, that doesn't necessarily happen in, in traditional folk stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we'll keep working people people who have been bitten by the bug um can't let it go yeah i mean it's it's that what there's that quote that says uh you know if you can be anything but an actor you should be anything but an actor (laughs) (laughs) and in some ways it feels that way with storytelling if you can do anything but try to make a living at storytelling then probably should do that and for me but but for me that this is this is my love and this is what i enjoy i think we will always have folk tales Mm-hmm. I don't think they will ever go away because what I do see in popular media is the revival and the dive into lesser known tales, um, mm-hmm. into integrating story and old folktale themes into new media, mm-hmm. books, films, things like that. Um, Liz Weir has, has said that um, she can read Harry Potter and see every folktale that inspired all of the magical aspects of that world mm-hmm. she knows every folktale that jk rowling drew from and and so for her she would just rather see and be in those folktales where those came from so i don't think fairy tales will ever go away mm-hmm. what i'm hopeful is that i mean i'm technically still kind of a new generation and i'm pushing 40. i started when i was pushing 30 but now i'm a decade into it and i i'm hopeful that we'll see some group of young people who want to play with these fairy tales, who want to tell them um, live. Mm-hmm. It's very much performance art and it, that it, it's um, leading 
the the thing about fairy tales you tell them once and especially when you're in person you will never tell it that way again right right such a performance well and i think that you know previously if there were you know young people they would and they wanted to perform it'd be like okay you know go to college, get an acting degree, and then, you know, you'll wait tables. Um, but, but, but now there's so many more options. You know, you can create it yourself. You can, you know, do, you can sit down and, and you know, do a makeup tutorial while you're telling a murder mystery. You can do whatever you want, right? And so I think that as things become, you know, more accessible, that, you know, there, there are going to be people that are interested in that um, and they just are drawn to it. I, I think in a lot of ways, the personal narratives feel like people feel like that it would be easier because they don't have to, you know, I don't have to go learn something. And, and then, you know, I, I can just tell what I know because it's my story. And so I think that that lends itself to people who are new to the world of storytelling. But, you know, like me, I that's, I started, I took a class and it was all personal narrative. Mm -hmm. And then I just went, no, that's, that's not really where my heart is. And so hopefully that, you know, the, the two kinds of different types of storytelling feed into each other a, a bit. Yeah, I hope so too. I, like you said, the people who do makeup tutorials and murder mysteries, I'm like, oh my gosh, that would be brilliant if somebody could do that with fairy tales. I am not a makeup person. <laughs> like three minutes and then I'll be like, well, to hear the rest of the story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and how does technology affect the experience of telling a story do you are you one of the people that likes to have everybody up on their screen or do you get distracted by that it's, it's such a different thing than sitting in a room and feeling the energy that people are giving you you can see their faces but how does that energy exchange work when you're on screen it was such an adjustment coming into the pandemic to try to move to zoom I, I, the, when you're in person, you see and react to the audience so much faster than it, you can even process when an audience laughs about something that you've said that you didn't even realize was a funny part in this story. <laughs> there's this energy that comes from it. And mm -hmm. on zoom, it's silence. You might see faces move. You might not, but it's also very intimate because when you're in a room full of a hundred people, and somebody doesn't laugh, you don't necessarily notice that. You notice the, you know, 50 people who chuckled. But when you're in Zoom and you see somebody not laughing, you're just like, oh, that person, why aren't they laughing? Are they okay? Or maybe I wasn't. So there's a, an intimacy that happens with Zoom that is very different than being in person. What I found for myself is being in person is high energy work. It's a, it's a high energy work in the sense I'm, I'm receiving and I'm thinking about a lot about what people are feeling. And when you're on Zoom, there's this feeling like you need to be a little bit bigger in the energy, but you kind of have to trust what you're doing is getting to the other side mm -hmm. and not obsess over it. And so I, I found that it made me a bit of a better storyteller because I became more confident in my choices how I interacted with the screen, with the screen, the motions I made, 
the words I chose, I could slow down because there's a bit of a pick up and run with it when you're in person with people that on Zoom, you can just slow down and savor parts of the story. So I'm hopeful that when we start doing more in-person events, we'll still do Zoom events. But as we start doing more in-person events, I can take what I've learned being on Zoom um, to in-person. Mm -hmm. But I'm the kind of person where I like to be able to see myself so I don't wander out of frame. Okay. But it's hard for me to see myself as the full screen. I don't, I can't look at myself. I tend to just shift my eyes to the camera yep. so that I'm talking directly to the camera and can see a little row of faces so that if I drop off or my audio goes bad, then I can see people's like, you know, when people are like, oh, I can't hear her. Right, uh, right. So I can still track the audience a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that, when you're live, you know, it's, you're in a room, the, the door is closed. Maybe, maybe you're in, you know, a tavern and there's other people behind you, but, but you're sort of, you've got your own enclosed little space. And when everyone is on Zoom, you know, it's like you see people like click, you know, click their camera off and you're like, oh. are they going to get a drink? <laughs> Do they have to go to the bathroom? Oh, yeah. The bathroom with someone now. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want that. Um, and, but, you know, your life kind of bleeds in because if you're living with other people or you have pets or whatever, you know, it, it's it's a distraction that wouldn't be part of that live telling. So it it, it it's harder, I think, even audience wise, even I, I mean, I, I love it. I love being able to see stuff from all over that I'd never get to see. Um, but I find myself doing the same thing. And, and it's like, you know, if there is a little chat in between, I'm like, Ooh, I have time to go, you know, get a glass of water. And, uh -huh. and so it, but, and, but I want to be present. And so I find that it can be hard to, and, and maybe this is part of the binge watching cultures is I can like dip in and out. And I'm like, no, I want to be here. And I want to hear, I want to hear what they're saying in between the stories and who the tellers are and all of that. Um, so it, it's, it is easier to get distracted as an audience member. Yeah. Well, and, and some of it, from what I've, I've seen, and I don't know all of the science of it, but on Zoom, we, it's harder to track people's responses and emotions. You have to use a lot more energy to see, to, to track and respond to somebody where in person it would feel much more natural. And so your brain with that lag time is kind of starts to check out. And so you're having to bring your brain back over and over and over again, which is why when somebody uh, comes to our shows and is eating or sewing, we've had people crocheting, you know, if they bring something to do with their hands, even if it's in person, I love it because I understand and feel that need to also have kind of something else to keep me focused and in my space. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. I'll sketch or sometimes I'll make jewelry and it, it grounds me. And then like I've got like sort of, you know, my my brain is being busy with that and then I can really hear it and focus on it. And, and I like that a lot. So, all right. Well, can you tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find Story Story, where they can find uh, the Stories with Spirit um, and how everyone can access all of this wonderful stuff that you're doing? 
Absolutely. So I'm at rachelannharding.com and that's where you can find information about me and some of the things I do. Um, you can find the podcast at storystorypodcast.com, but it's also across all of the podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, um, Stitcher. It's all over the place. Um, the podcast has a Patreon page. So if you like a little bit more, I send out postcards with fairy tale sponsor images on them um, every every quarter. There's a club involved with that. There's hangouts and things like that. So there's um, the podcast is there. On social media, I'm Rachel Ann Harding. Stories with Spirit is best found on Facebook. That's where we post a lot of information about our upcoming shows. Okay. So you can find that. And we've got a lot of a lot of them lined up for the next couple of months where we are working on getting some lined up for 2023 and beyond. So we've got a lot of great, great events that will be coming up on Zoom. And if you aren't able to make the event, then you can uh, watch them later. What's lovely, they're all recorded and and so you can you can join in even if you're not there live. But it is fun being there live because then you can ask questions afterwards. So okay, and we will include the the links uh, if you're listening to this on the website, so you can get that as well. Um, so you can find Rachel Ann wherever she is. Um, and you can also, I just recently started up on Twitter again, and that's Rachel Ann's story. Um, I'm doing short essays about storytelling for parents, so that that you know that if you need. Uh, an encouragement or want to change endings or want to know why this is helpful for your child to do stories or to hear stories, then I'm starting to do little essays there. And I love interacting with folks who, who tell me how bedtime went and or how story time went in their house. Nice. I'm going to have to track you down on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us, all things story. Um, story, story, I guess. <laughs> um, and it was great to have you on and to learn about what you're doing. Thank you so much. It's always a delight to be able to talk about um, what I love. And I really appreciate you inviting me on to this fabulous podcast. <laughs> In a moment, you can hear Rachel Ann telling the story of Hansel and Gretel. You can find out more about her work on her website at www.rachelannharding.com. You'll find links from the episode page for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website. You can support the Folklore Podcast and our work on Patreon for as little as a pound a month and access many years' worth of exclusive member content whilst helping us to continue to do what we do. Visit www.patreon.com slash the Folklore Podcast for more details. Thanks for listening. Here's Rachel Ann Harding telling the story of Hansel and Gretel. Long ago, there was a woman who was wealthy, unmarried, and living alone on an estate in the woods. So it was assumed she was a witch. The rumors suited her just fine, and she settled down to enjoy her life. The poor folk who poached in her forest got glimpses of her fine house and brought back rumors that the thatching was so thick it looked like gingerbread, the plaster smooth and white as icing on the finest pastry. She had real glass in her windows that shimmered like sugar. The huge house had many rooms, but it was basically her. When she inherited all of it, she shut up the rooms, sent away the servants, basically living in the kitchen and tending to the little herd of goats, which lived in a shed just outside the door. 
She spent the winter reading, milking her goats, baking bread to keep the kitchen warm. And in the summer, she baked in the outdoor oven, keeping the kitchen cool. She would take her goats up to the green pastures in the woods. The woman kept to herself, and all of her goods and any rumors of the outside world were delivered by wagon once a week. One late summer, when she was no longer young, she heard a scratching from outside as if a mouse was nibbling at her house. She stepped outside and saw two children thin as thirsty trees. One of the children was scratching at her plaster, and the other was licking the window pane. What on earth are you doing? The children cowered back. She saw the hollows in their cheeks, the circles as dark as bruises under their eyes, and the little girl clasped her brother's hand and finally spoke. Are you the witch? The hex that lives in the woods? Yes, I am the hex, and I eat children too. The children began to cry, and she felt badly. No, no, I, I can't stand crying, children. What are your names? The little girl pulled it together and answered, I'm Gretel. This is my brother Hansel. Why are you in the woods? Where are your parents? Mother and father left us by the fire and said they'd come back. But that was three days ago. Famine meant there were a lot of children abandoned wandering in the woods, found by wolves before they were found by her. She, Hexa, took them in and gave them soup with thick slices of bread. When it became apparent the children would be staying with her, she opened up one of the rooms. The children jumped on the old bed and told her they had never slept in one so soft, their laughter filling the room with sweetness. In time, Gretel became Hexa's shadow around the home, Hexa being what they affectionately called her now. Learning to milk the goats, she tended the garden, she gathered herbs, she lit the oven, and would help slide in the loaves of bread for the day. Hansel especially loved to follow Hexa when she took the goats out to the meadows where he could explore the woods. He would climb high up the trees to find forgotten nests, nuts, and fruit. He would bring those treasures to her by the hand fulfilling her apron. One day, Hansel emerged from the woods, leading another child, as thin as the wheat in the fields. Who's this? Hexa asked. He's been waiting for his parents to return for four days. Hexa considered the child and only said, Well, you must teach him not to lick the windows. I'll make extra bread tomorrow. Soon another child and another was found or led in from the woods. Additional rooms in the house were opened, and Hexa found it necessary to increase her weekly orders. Gretel began to make and take the deliveries, and those who delivered the food were grateful for the extra money, so they didn't ask any questions. The cold came. The forest turned pale with frost, but within the walls of that house, the children knew the warmth of a bountiful fire and enough food to eat. After one very cold night, they found a small, frozen body curled up against the roots of a tree not far from the house. Hexa wept, knowing that if the child had come a little further, he would have seen the light in the windows. He would have been saved. He would have been warm and fed. Hansel and Gretel watched her tears fall, and then put the troop of children to work. 
gathering buckets of white pebbles. Then one by one, stone by stone, they pressed them into the dirt, creating shimmering paths curling out from the house and deep into the woods, stones glistening like silver coins for lost souls to follow. After the stone paths were created, timid knocks came at the door every few weeks. By the end of winter, the rooms were full, and the smell of baking bread always filled the warm, noisy house. When spring came, the children burst out of the house like blossoms on the trees. The goats were happily looked after, each new kid, both goat and child, bouncing around in the fresh air. Hexa, Hansel, and Gretel organized the hive of chaos, and when the summer came, they baked in the outdoor oven that was so big it could hold more than a dozen loaves of bread. While Eden reigned there in the woods, the famine raged on outside of them, and with the famine came plague. Hexa found the sick child at the edge of the forest, on a path of white stones, shivering and coughing. She hesitated. She did. But she saw the hollows in the child's cheeks, the circles as dark as bruises under her eyes. She picked the child up and walked back to the house. Hexa retreated to her room with the child in her arms and locked the door, forbidding anyone to come in. Gretel passed her food and water, anything she asked for through the window. Day after day, Gretel listened to the coughing, the soothing words and songs, and she noticed Hexa's hands becoming thin and bony as she retrieved each item, taking it into that dark room. Hansel and Gretel made the breads, roasted the meat, and whispered news to the other children. The sick child lived ten days, and when the little soul was breathed out, Hexa made the children stand far away. She emerged from her room with the wasted body wrapped in a sheet and burned it in the summer oven until there was nothing left but ash. Even from a distance, Hansel and Gretel could see those circles growing under her eyes, watch her shake as she began to cough. But when the oven was cool, Hexa went back to her room and closed the door, forbidding any child from entering. She wrapped herself in her own winding sheet and spoke to Gretel through the window. Gretel, you have to burn it all. After I'm gone... Tie a cloth over your nose and mouth and burn me and all that is in this room. Hansel and Gretel sat under the window, holding hands, waiting, listening to Hexa's slowing breath, praying the prayers they knew, all the other children in a quiet circle around them. And when Hexa had breathed out her last, brother and sister did one last thing for the woman who saved them. With cloths wound around their faces, Hansel and Gretel carried the woman to the hot oven, pushed her in, and let the fire take her. Holding hands and praying for the woman who had watched over them as her ashes floated away. Hansel and Gretel continued to bake the bread, take deliveries. The children continued to live there. There was gold enough to see them grown. One by one, children no longer they set out to seek their fortunes. They took with them the story of a house made of gingerbread, a witch who was burnt in an oven, and paths of pebbles shining like silver coins, leading them home.
The siren song is calling Karen's name to come home. Will she choose her career or community? Mulverin, a new play about mermaids and matriarchy, runs at the old fire station Oxford and the Space Theatre London this March. For more details, visit marvellousmachine.com. Tickets from £6.